0: Hey there everybody, welcome to another episode of the Horror Crypt Podcast, episode number 14 in our trilogy right now. Have you ever wanted to have a movie you just sit and relax and enjoy, you don't think too much about, but it just is a really fun movie to watch? Well, today we're going to be reviewing the 1982 movie, Creepshow. So this movie was directed by George A. Romero and was written by Stephen King, making his film screenwriting debut. Now, I when I seen this movie, I, I thought to myself, wow, this is, was his very first movie he's ever done. I was actually thinking that he'd done other ones, but no, apparently this was it. There's a, a list of so many characters and movies that uh, he, he did, and it's just amazing. That this is his very first one, <laughs> but um, this also is lists a cast of many, many people that actually contributed to this movie. Uh, Leslie Nielsen is one of them, Hal Holbrook is another one. Funny enough, it didn't cro- uh, quote Ed Harris in um, anything, but actually, that this was one of his very first movies that he ever did. And yeah, to say that he's actually advanced in his uh film, <laughs> film career is an understatement. This was uh, a very, very small role for him. Um, yeah, it's not a very long one, and it's just, uh, yeah, it just yeah just shows you where he was gonna go with his acting career. Hopeful that he was gonna go a bit further. So this was released in May sixteenth, nineteen eighty two. I saw that it's actually on uh, uh, video cassette, actually, because back in those days, you go to the video store and you pick up a video cassette and. The front cover of this movie really gave me the, oh, I've got to see this movie. What's it all about? Um, And once I'd seen this one, I was hooked as far as this goes. Um, At one stage, we're going to do Creepshow Part 2. Creepshow Part 3 was released. I'm staying well and truly away from that one. That doesn't interest me whatsoever. But yeah, it was released in May 16th, 1982. It was a running time of 120 minutes. But this, it doesn't feel like it's going 120 minutes. It doesn't feel like it's dragging on. Each of the stories that we're going to do today um, is just really enjoyable. Really fun sort of uh, movie to watch. You don't think too much about this movie. It's just a couple of great jump scares. But all in all, it's just a really great movie. The budget was um, $8 million. And the funny thing is that this took $21 million. Yes, as the little interlude... Uh, suggested it's money, 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 baby, money in the bank. Um, there's uh, the film consists of five short stories and uh, Father's Day. The Lonesome Death of Geordie Verrill, Something to Tide You Over, The Crate, and The Creeping Up on You. Two of these stories were adapted from King's short stories, with the film bookended by prologue and epilogue. So, um, it's it's really, it's not like one continuous movie. They do break it up into little segments. Each episode is maybe about, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. It's really not a huge amount of time, but uh, it really does give you a, a great idea about what he was going for. The movie in itself was just great. Um, the film earned twenty one point two eight million seven hundred and fifty five thousand dollars in the United States alone, which actually wasn't wasn't too good. And of course, it's now had a cult following. Uh, following, we're just all over the place now. So, like I usually do, right now, here comes the trailer. Coming soon. Jolting tales of horror. Creep show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream (coughs) ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver doings of evil doctors this is going to be extremely painful mr vera An entirely new experience. Creep Show. The most fun you'll ever have being scared. So like I said last week, um, the trailer doesn't really give the movie justice and doesn't really do the movie justice as far as how fun this movie is going to be when we start, you know, doing this. Now, however, remember, like everything, there is going to be spoiler alerts. So hearing that sound, it'll tell you that there are going to be spoilers throughout this movie, so if you don't want to don't want to get spoiled, go see Creep Show, the original Creep Show, come back and uh, you got to come back and listen to the podcast. So before I get started on the actual movie, please remember to um, subscribe to the channel if you haven't done already. I really hope you do subscribe um, and follow me. And as I said, just uh, tell a friend, you know, that uh, there's a decent podcast, a horror crypt podcast. And come and listen. It really helps me to build uh, the podcast and the show. All right, so we're going to get into this movie. So a young boy named Billy Hopkins gets disciplined by his abusive father, Stan. Yeah, he starts off with, um, there's an exterior shot of a house, and basically the father is telling off this young boy who um, is reading horror crap, as he says. And really the only thing that's really worrying the father is it's just the comic book that he's reading. And it is a horror comic, and I'm hearing, you know, you hear him say, where do you get this crap? Who sells it to you? And uh, he's basically disciplining his son, and then of course... His uh, son rem- basically tells the father that, "Oh, these books aren't as bad as the move the books that you've got hiding in your um, dresser drawer, the one in your underwear." And of course, the father slaps him across the face and says, "Oh, you know, now I realize you're a, a little sneak as well." And he goes, "No, it's not like that. I just went in there to get your cufflinks the other day on you know on Sunday, and I just happened to see them." So <laughs> the father basically says, "The next time I see you reading this piece of crap, buddy boy, you won't be able to sit down for a week." And he goes tuck in, and he goes no, Daddy, please don't throw away my comic book. I'm sorry. So the father decides, no, <laughs> screw this. So after swiping the comic from Billy and throwing it in the garbage, Stan tells his wife that he that he's that he was a little bit hard on Billy because he doesn't want to read the son to read it <laughs> calling it horror crap. As Billy sits upstairs wishing his father rot in hell, he hears a tap on the window. Now this is goes from uh, live animation to comic book. And they actually have the swipes and things like that, and I think it's really great the way they've they've done they've done this movie. It's not just one movie to another to another part or to another part. It's swipes as if you're turning a comic book, and each of the stories starts in a comic form and then becomes live action. But this moment, um, Billy's sitting on the on the bed and he's you know saying, "I hope you right in hell." And he does hear the tap on the window and he looks over and there's a skeleton uh, sitting in the in the in the window. It's actually the creep. And that's the host of the show. And of course, Billy's like looking at him and he's got that, that look on his face like, yeah. And, you know, at first you think to yourself, he wants to beat the shit out of the creep. But I think in some ways, the creep is trying to tell him what he can do to get even with his father. So the no- the source and the the source of the noise turns out to be the creep, the host of the comic book, beckoning him to come closer. The film transitions to animation as the creep removes the lid from the trash can. Transitioning to our very first story. And that first story, is Father's Day, and this is really great. I love this one. So uh, Sylvia Grantham gathers her nephew Richard, niece Caths, and Cass's new husband Hank. This is Ed Harris, and as I said, Ed Harris um, doesn't make a huge great appearance in this movie. He also can't dance for shit. So if you want to giggle, go on, what? go on, go on to YouTube and type in Ed Harris dances on um, the Creep Show. It is the funniest thing you'll see. It looks like he needs to take a shit seriously. <laughs> He's not a good dancer. Now I'm not saying that I'm a fantastic dancer by any means, or any stretch of the imagination, but uh, he really doesn't know how to dance. <laughs> so, um, at their estate for the annual dinner on the third Sunday in June, they proceed to tell Hank about the current family matriarch, Great Aunt Bedelia, and about her father, the former patriarch and domineering Nathan Grantham. Who accumulated the family's fortune through bootlegging fraud extortion and murder for hire which was really quite nice because uh during the movie you'll actually understand why they just said murder for hire so seven years earlier bedelia was rendered an unstable spinster as a result of a lifetime spent putting up with her father's incessant demands and emotional abuse which only got worse after he suffered a stroke and made her nurse him at full time. The abuse culminated in his orchestrating the murder of her sweetheart, Paul Yarbrough, to keep her under his thumb. So what had actually happened was she met a really nice guy, an elderly gentleman, and um, they said he died from a hunting accident, which in actual fact Nathan Grantham to make sure that uh Dotty old Aunt Bedelia doesn't go anywhere, um obviously had him murdered. And of course Bedelia now, the thing that happens in this in this one is that uh Every year on Father's Day, Bedelia comes up to pay tribute to his to her father, and she always arrives at 6 p.m. on the dot, and you can set your watch by her, as they say. So Bedelia is taking her time to get up to you know up to her father's you know, gravesite which happens to be on the estate. So there, there's a certain part of the estate that just has him buried there, and obviously other family members. So of course Bedelia does go and pay tribute to him by just sitting there and meditating for about an hour and just starts to talk to him about certain things about her life and it does get to that point where she starts resenting what her father did obviously all those years and starts to argue quite voraciously about you know the fact that you know you killed him and he was a real man and everything he wanted he wanted for me and how dare you go and and kill him and he was someone that i loved and everything but he's she's basically saying this to his gravesite which, that's fine, anyone that goes to a graveside will sit there and talk to our loved ones and things like that. But she's really letting him have it because, yeah, at this moment, you know, this is her, the love of her life. And, and the father has decided, well, no, 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 you're going to be spending all your time with me, nursing me to health and, uh, you know, nursing me. So you're going to be basically under my thumb and I'm going to control everything that you do. So that father's day, Bedelia having been driven into a murderous murderous rage, by his constant demanding for his cake, bludgeons her father to, de- to death with a marble ashtray ash that is actually hidden throughout the other story. So this marble ashtray will appear in every part of uh, Creepshow and in every part of the movie that you go through, every story you see, you got to look for the ashtray. And... I will do some fun facts at the end of the, of the uh, podcast, and I'll give you an idea of exactly where it is and where to look for it. Sometimes it really, really stands out. Other times you've got to hunt for it, but I will tell you exactly where it is. So basically, Nathan wants his Father's Day cake, and he's got a cane, and he's banging it on both of the arms of the chair that he's sitting in in the, living, in the dining room. And he's saying, you know, Bedelia, you were supposed to be here to take care of me. What do you think I've got you here for? You like all the others. You're just a greedy vulture, and he's she's he's really going at her continuously, and he's like, "You, Bedelia, you bitch!" And she just basically gets to that point where she's had enough, and she just screams because she's in the middle of you know decorating her father's Father's Day cake, and she's just losing it. And at this moment, she, he just is pushed her right over the edge, and she basically walks into the um, uh, dining room, picks up this marble ashtray and just basically whacks him and kills him. So in the present, Bedelia arrives at 6pm and stops in the cemetery outside her father's house to lay a flower at the gravesite. So yeah, as I said, in this movie, you basically set your watch to Bedelia and you can hear her screeching up the driveway at 6pm on the dot, every Father's Day. She she goes there without fail. So there she drunkenly, drunkenly remiss, reminisces on how she murdered her overbearing father and how Sylvia, her sister, help stage it as an accident to steal and distribute his fortune to the rest of the family. So he basically taught them just to how to get around um, the law, how to skirt around the law and how to get away with things. And of course, they learned from, as Bedelia says, we learned from the best. And so it was very easy to stage the fact that he had just fallen, that he was not hit over the head and killed that he just happened to fall off of his chair, hit his head. And of course, you know, there was a housekeeper, uh, Mrs. Grantham, in there as well. Now, she was a witness to the whole thing, but being a very loyal employee to the family, she just kept her mouth shut and was like, Nope, not going to go down that, that path. I'll just keep my mouth shut. Um, now, of course, Bedelia takes a bottle of Jack Daniels with her to swig away in the, in the cemetery, and she's getting slowly, slowly toasted. But, of course, she's also got that emotional... Um, situation that she's still pining after her lost love and really is letting her father have it at the gravesite. So after she accidentally spills her bottle, her whiskey bottle, in front of the headstone, Nathan's petrified maggot-infested corpse emerges from the burial plot in the form of a, <laughs> of a revenant still demanding Father's Day cake he never got. So you basically see her. Um, She's sitting on the gravesite and uh, you see the bottle in front and uh, then suddenly, bang, up comes the, the hand. Now, this is why I'm saying this movie's got a, a great amount of jump scares because this one really does does you know jolt you a little bit because you see this hand come out of the ground. And, of course, he, he comes out and the, the very first thing he says as he comes out of the ground is, Where's my Father's Day cake? <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. So she, he goes over to her and basically strangles her to death and makes his way from the grave towards the house. And he's like... Where's my Father's Day cake? I want it. It's mine. And he's heading towards the house. Now, of course, the rest of the family, they're still waiting for Aunt Bedelia to come in because they're going to be celebrating Father's Day with a nice baked ham. And, of course, um, Sylvia is, is, you know, the her sister. So she's basically sitting there going, oh, for God's sakes, come on. And, um, you know, the, the niece and the nephew are, are dancing away and Hank's dancing away. Poor old Hank. Ed Harris looks like he needs to take a shit, but that's okay. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> Grantham slowly avenges himself on Bedelia, strangling her to death. He moves on to kill the rest of the Granthams. So as he's walking towards the house, you know, and there's, there's dancing going on, and uh, Sylvia is like, okay, you know, can we, because th- there's music's going, and she's like, can we turn the music down? So Hank goes outside, and um, now he'd been told about the fact that Aunt Bedelia had killed uh, her father so she just he decides to go out and have a bit of a cigarette and he sees the car door open so he closes the car door and walks towards the gravesite and obviously he's looking for miss you know aunt bedelia or mrs grantham and of course as he's walking along he slips into the gravesite and uh he goes to get up and he he pulls what he thinks is a weed but it happens to be uh, Bedelia's arm and of course Bedelia then falls on him and of course he's got that oh my god I'm in a grave and looks above him and there happens to be uh, obviously the headstone the headstone suddenly moves and at this moment Hank's like oh shit <laughs> like what am I what what's going to happen and then he looks up you know a little bit further and there's the corpse of uh, let's say Mr. Grantham Nathan standing above him so now he looks uh, towards the now this is Nathan Nathan Grantham the the uh, the corpse, and he looks towards the headstone and he almost moves it like he's a Jedi. He starts pulling it towards him, and I'm thinking at this stage is he part of like you know the Jedi mind order? He's is able to move stuff anyway. He's pulling it towards him by just doing the Jedi mind trick, and pulls it onto Hank, squashing him in the ground and killing him. So that's when he decides that he has a bit of a joke and a laugh about it and s- starts walking towards the house. So, of course, as they're going along, uh, Sylvia decides that you know, she needs to go into the, the kitchen. So she goes to the kitchen and Mrs. Danfors, which happens to be the um, housekeeper, falls against the window of the, of the double doors and she's being strangled and killed. So, of course, Sylvia turns around to, to run out and, of course, there is Nathan... In all his ghoulish glee, standing there, going, "I want my father's day cake," and snaps her neck. So of course, you got Cynthia now. Sorry, not Cynthia, Sylvia. So she's disappeared. So you've got the, the niece and the nephew standing in the in the living room, and they're going, "Okay, so where is she? Where's Aunt Sylvia? Where's you know my husband? Oh, I want dinner. This and that." So the other guy goes, "Well, listen, I just want to go in and get another bottle of wine." So of course. She says, well, you know, can you go, Richard, and try and find them? And he goes, look, I don't, I'm not going to go anywhere. I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to go get another bottle of wine. They both head towards the kitchen. And, of course, you know, as they're walking towards the kitchen, all the lights are off in the kitchen. And, of course, (laughs) Richard goes, oh, are we conserving electricity right now? So as they go towards the door, they go to push the door. The The door comes back out at them. And as a gruesome final joke, Nathan surprises Cass and Richard by presenting his Father's Day cake topped with Sylvia's severed severed head. (laughs) While the ending is left ambiguous in the film, with Nathan gloating over his terrified Cass and Richard in the freeze frame, the comic book based on the film gives a vague hint that Nathan's next act was to blow out the candles. Returning to the animation, the creep turns the comic's next page to the story. And it was really interesting because as as uh, the door swings open and you get that oh my god, and he goes, I it's Father's Day and I've got my cake, Happy Father's Day, <laughs> and it's like oh my god, it was just so brilliant. It, I just I just loved it. It really was great. So then as I said, the page turns and of course you get a now a um a freeze frame of the next story and the next story happens to be the lonesome death of Geordie Varrell. This section of the film is based on King's short story Weeds and would you believe this one is actually stars for the entire movie Stephen King himself. Yep he is Geordie Varrell and this story is rather interesting because it takes place on a farm a very destitute and look like a very derelict farm it looks like it's basically run out of its out of his mind is just so ready to be dismantled and just turned into just fields but anyway this is Geordie Varel so Geordie Varel a dim-witted backwards yokel watches a meteorite crash to (laughs) crash land near his farm observing the crash site Geordie gets his fingers burnt when he tries to touch the meteorite so really so the meteorite comes flying across his uh field and into the ground he goes oh holy old jesus and he runs over and he goes that's that that's a meteor. I bet, shit, that's a medium. And he goes, <laughs> and of course, it's really hot. So he goes, oh, what am I going to do? So of course, what's the first thing that anyone does? Oh, let's go and poke it with something. Well, what does Geordie Verrall does? He pokes it with his finger. And of course, he burns <laughs> his fingers. And he goes, i to, oh, got to cool the son of a bitch off. Yeah, that's an idea. So he goes and starts filling up a, a, a pail of water to throw on this thing. So you can see that there's some blotches on his fingers where he's been burnt so anyone that would burn their fingers would go red whatever but these are like um welts or um yeah yeah, i'm just gonna say they're just welts but they're they're circular in in look and they look horrible but anyway so (laughs) geordie's sucking on his fingers and while he's watching the pail of water get bigger and bigger anyway he runs towards the the meteorite site and now before this before this he looks at it and he goes, I wonder how much they would pay for this up in the college. So he has a flashback as like he has a daydream of what he would do with, with the meteorite. So you see the Department of Media's when he goes to there and the doctor says to him, um, how about uh, seven, uh, $50? And he goes, nope. And he goes, what about 75 And he goes, nope, I want nothing less than 200 bucks." Because he wants to pay off a bank loan. Now, if I had a bank loan of $200, I'd I'd have my dick out half the time. A bank loan of $200 is awesome. So, he decides that, yeah, mate. hopefully this, this meteorite will do it. So, hoping the sale will provide enough money to pay off a $200 bank loan. He basically tells the doctor that his father doesn't raise no idiots. And he wants to keep counting up to $200. So taking precautions, he douses it with a bucket of water. Now he decides that I better cool the son of a bitch off because it's too hot, I can't pick it up. So if I cool it off, then that'll be fine. You know, there'll be no dramas whatsoever. And, you know, I'll be able to pick it up after it's been cooled down and put it into the bucket. And I can take it to the Department of Meteors. Unfortunately, he douses it with a bucket of water, ca- <laughs> causing it to crack open and spilling a glowing blue liquid. Of course, in, in another fantasy sequence, Geordie imagines the Department of Media was refusing to purchase the broken meteorite. So he goes in there and he has another, another, as I said, one of those daydreams of like, Oh, God, that's my luck. Always bad. Always, you know, it's it's just not not my luck. And he has a daydream and he goes to the Department of Media and he goes, uh, Mr. Verrall, are you joking? And he goes, I wouldn't give you two cents. So, of course, he's like, yep, that's Geordie, uh, Geordie Verrall's luck. All right. Always in. Always bad. So he decides that uh, maybe um, I'll be able to <laughs> try gluing the halves back together in the morning. But he does um, tip out these blue liquid inside of the meteorite, meteorite into the soil. And of course, it, it goes on his skin, of course. So now you've got it on his fingers and on his hands as well. So as time passes, Geordie finds his fingers being overcome by a rapidly spreading plant-like organism. So as he's sitting there and he's watching uh the world of professional wrestling he's um there's a transformation going outside and the transformation is that things are becoming very very green so whatever was in this meteorite was going to just basically you know green the place overnight but it's a very very fine it's almost like it, it is it's weeds so it's now all over his fingers and of course he's drinking a bottle of, of um beer or whatever it is and sees that there's some some growth in his fingers he's like oh my god i've got you know what the hell's going on what what is all this about so he decides that listen i I think i'm gonna to have to call the doctor so he attempts to call the doctor but stops when he imagines in another fantasy sequence that the doctor will end up chopping his affected fingers off without anesthetic so he goes in and now the guy who was in the department of medias is now the department of surgery and he's looking at the fingers and he goes um i'm sorry mr varrell but Those fingers are going to have to come off. And, of course, then you see him slide across the the floor to um, his medical equipment. And he pulls out what is only considered to be a hatchet, basically. And he's running his fingers down the blade of the hatchet. And he goes, this is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Varel. And, of course, Geordie immediately starts screaming in this imaginary flashback. So, of course, he decides, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And puts the phone down. So over time, the, plants continue, the plant continues to grow all over Geordie's farm. Everything Geordie has touched and on Geordie's body. So his hands have, have got this, this green weed, his face, because he touches his face. And, of course, what does he do while he's seeing all this green stuff? He's like, oh, my God, I've been, and he thinks to himself, I've had my fingers in my mouth. And he goes over to a mirror, opens his uh, mouth up, and then, of course, there is the, the plant substance growing on his tongue. So he's like, oh, my God, you know, I don't know what to do. And, of course, it itches because it's a weed, so it's it's itching him all over his body. In a panic, Geordie pours himself a bottle of vodka and mixes it, mixes it with orange juice and falls asleep in a drunken stupor because he's like, yep, yeah, I, I I just need something to drink. I can't do this. So he wakes up later, believing it to have been a dream. So he's like, oh, my God, thank." think. And then a the guy is like, oh, no, it's actually real. <laughs> so his hopes are dashed. When he discovers uh, that the plants are now growing inside the house and discovering a mirror that he has now grown a beard of plants so he's got this awesome basically full face beard and uh, it, it, it's just it's everywhere it's it's overtaken his body it's dove, it's overtaken the entire house all outside and of course geordie's <laughs> got that whole thing he looks in the mirror and he goes oh i'm growing so you can really see that it, it's a desperation now he's really really desperate as far as, what am I going to do? I, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm running out of options. So, um, he, he decides he, he decides to draw a bath. So, he thought, well, he's like, okay, it itches so much, I need to go and have a bath. Which is fine, but there's a problem. So, he starts to draw a bath to relieve the itching, but is visited by the ghost of his deceased father, who appears in the mirror and warns him against doing so. You ain't going to get in that tub, are you? It's the water that it wants, Geordie. <laughs> Don't you know that? You get in that tub, Geordie. You might as well sign your death warrant. Geordie grimly rationalises that not getting into would only would only delay the inevitable, laments on how he's a goner already. When the itching from the growth in his skin becomes unbearable, Geordie succumbs to the temptation and collapses into the bathwater. So you see him and he's as I said, he's talking to his father and he's like, I'm a goner already, Daddy And he's looking at the water and the water's glistening with blue and it looks inviting, and he's like, "Oh!" And of course, he falls basically head first But before that, he's getting undressed, and you know his beard is down onto his chest, and he looks down. And he goes, "Oh no, not there!" So we're only guessing that he's got a dick and balls full of this green um, plant shit all over all over him. So his pubic hair has now become the plant. So of course, as I said, the temptation becomes too much. geordie just says, "Okay, I can't. I've got to do this," and he just falls into the water, and you hear him saying oh better better oh that's wonderful and he's splashing around having a great time unfortunately this gets a lot worse so the next morning morning geordie's farm has become completely covered with a dense layer of alien vegetation with geordie himself now transformed into a plant monster like he is completely encased as a, as a plant you can't recognize hands feet head anything he's just one giant plant in despair, he reaches for a shotgun. Praise to God. And of course, he's just basically saying, to saying, you know, please God, just this once. And obviously, he's saying that because his luck has always been so bad, please give me good luck, just this once. I just want to end my life. I can't do this. I need, I need to be able to kill myself. So in despair, he does reach for the shotgun and he blows the top of his head off, thus killing himself. Immediately afterwards, a TV weatherman announces that moderate temperatures and heavy rains are predicted. The implication being that this will accelerate the spread of the extraterrestrial plant growth to surrounding areas to the point where the Earth may be transformed into an entirely green planet. Well, for for the most part, a lot of uh, places around the world does need a lot of green, so hey, why not? (laughs) Returning to animation, A Gust of Wind turns the comic book page briefly passing over an advertisement for a voodoo doll that is missing its order form and it headed heads heads itself to the next story and this is where i'm going to end it just for the moment we're going to have as a little bit of a surprise a bit of an ad break and i'll come back with the other stories So welcome back from that little interlude. This one is called Something to Tide You Over. And this has Leslie Nielsen. And I'll tell you some fun facts at the end of the movie um, about the different aspects of this movie. And little, you know, as I said, little fun things that they actually did. And this also stars Ted Danson as well. Which, another one, I don't know whether he was in the middle of doing Cheers. Or whether this was he was going, going to be doing Cheers. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson. Two big stars. This was in it. So Leslie Nielsen's character, Richard Vickers, is a vicious, very vicious man. Um, he's very wealthy, and he, he pays a visit to Harry, who happens to be Ted Danson, uh, believing that his wife, Becky, is having an affair with him. Rather than confront him with, <laughs> with just a regular conversation, he confronts him with violence. Richard plays a recording of Becky's voice tearfully begging Harry to help her. Richard and Harry travel to Comfort Point, Richard's private beachfront estate, where Richard points out that what appears to be a burial mound in the sand. Harry runs to it, whereupon Richard holds him at gunpoint, telling him to jump into the hole and bury himself. So, yeah, he basically says, you know, I, I believe that something's going on. And and Harry doesn't, it doesn't um, sit there and go, oh, okay, well, we're not. He basically says, listen, yes, we are. We wanted to tell you all about it, but we just haven't got around to it yet. Now, at this point, I've got to tell you, if you're expecting Leslie Nielsen in the sort of um naked gun slapstick sort of comedy he doesn't do that uh he's very much a a role that i've never seen him play he's very very vicious very manipulative um and really he's very scary too and he says to um harry uh you know just jump into that hole and he's like well no no no, you can kill me because at this stage he's holding him at gunpoint and he goes no no no, you can kill me if you want to but uh you're not going to bury me alive and of course uh yeah he says well that's not a bad idea but noah what i want you to do is i just want to incapacitate you and then you can see becky so basically kneel down on the ground pour you know like pull in all the sand and i'm going to bury you up to your head so it's a very disgusting and sadistic sort of game he's playing so richard richard ferry finishes burying harry up to his neck in the sand below the high tide line this is going to come to come into play what he's planning on doing i'm sure you're sitting there going I know exactly what he's going to do, but we'll let Paul continue on with the story. But I know what is going to happen. So he also sets up a closed circuit TV camera and a VCR to record Harry and a monitor that displays Becky, who is also buried up to her neck further down the beach and already is having the tide wash over her face. Because he says, you know, if you get into the hole and you bury yourself up to your neck, I promise you I will let you see Becky. So, of course, then it's like, okay, if this is what you, you know, you're promising me that I'm going to see Becky, then I'll do it. So he does. But, of course, you know, he when he gets buried up to his neck and Richard brings the TV set and he's like, okay, so, and he puts the, the TV in front of Harry and he goes, there you go, it's showtime. And, of course, there's Becky, you know, and, of course, and Harry's immediately going, oh, this that's some sort of special effects trick, you know. And uh, he's like, no, 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 if you look, on, uh, look at the back of you, <clears throat> oh, sorry, you can't turn around. Um, but he says the, uh, VCR that you can see at the back, I assure you is on record. It's not on play. He goes, I'm going to, you know, going to save this. And he goes, well, you're insane. And of course, Leslie Nielsen's character goes, well, I told you that I was going to let you see Becky. So what's insane about that? And of course, then you can see the tide starting to come in and he's like, oh, the tide. And of course, Harry's now, um, you know, please Richard, get me out of this hole. And he goes, no, 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 no. I want you to stay there. You can continue watching the show, but I've really got to go because the tide's coming in. And, of course, Harry's, you know, really, his, his heart's pumping like anyone would be. You know, it, it would be pumping because you'd know, oh my God, what is going to happen to me? Even though he's got an idea. So Richard explains that the two of them have a chance of survival if they can hold their breath long enough for the sand to loosen once the salt water covers them. They could break free and escape. You're So say, he's basically saying, okay, so remember... You know, you can hold your breath long enough and you may get out of this alive. You know, you've got to, it's depending on the tide. The tide may pull you out, but you know, you've just got to be able to hold your breath, you know, and that's what he keeps reiterating. If you can hold your breath long enough. So of course, with that, Richard abandons Harry and returns to the comfort station, which is his estate, his lavish beachside house, where he watches Harry and Becky dying in comfort and luxury of his home. It's, it's a very true, you know, it's just lovely to be him to be sitting there while these two people are basically getting killed. And of course, as he, as he drives away and, you know, Harry sees the water start lapping up towards him and then it does actually hit him. And he has that that moment of realisation like, oh my God, like this is, this is going to happen now, I'm going to get covered over. So as he's watching in, in the comfort of his own home, he's got one, he's got these small little monitors and he's got Becky and Harry right next to each other and of course... You know, the, the water's coming over and Harry looks directly into the into the camera and goes, Richard, and, and of course, you know he can't answer, but he's listening to him. And he goes, I'm going to get you. I don't know how, but I'm going to get you. And then, of course, he's hit by a wall of water. And, of course, um, uh, Richard, which is Leslie Nielsen's character, goes, you got to hold your breath there, Harry. And, of course, at that moment, you see that Harry is now fully submerged underneath the water. Now, the way they did this that it looks really great is that at the back of his head it's getting redder and redder so that basically means that he's holding his breath longer and longer and he's running out of breath but he's fully now submerged underneath the water which would be the most terrifying um way to go it would just be absolutely terrifying because you basically you are you're gonna you're drowning so hours later richard returns to the spot he buried harry to collect the tape he finds the ruined monitor but no sign of Harry's corpse. So you think to yourself, I wonder what's going to happen. And of course you hear in the background, you know, Richard, but they, he just thinks that that's just, you know, the tide or the water or birds or whatever. So he doesn't think much of it. And he goes, um, yeah, he, he's pretty sure that the, the tide pulled him out. That's what happened. The tide, the tide got him. So later that night, Richard seems to hear voices calling his name, as well as observing some unseen force passed by the many security measures he's put in place. The culprits, yes. The culprits happen to be Harry and Becky, the two lovers re- returning as a pair of waterlogged, seaweed-covered zombies, intent on revenge. Richard tries to shoot them, but the bullets have no effect. So he basically, you know, he he opens the door, and of course, there's Richard and um, and Becky, and he's like, and they're like, "We wanted to see you." And he goes, "We've get we've be, uh, dug a hole for you in the beat in the beach, Richard. We you know we want you to come with us." And of course, so. Uh, what's the first thing you do if you've got a gun? You know, you fire at them, and of course it just hits the head, and they just keep walking towards him. And he, you know, I, I've never understood how in movies you finish shooting a gun. Why would you throw the gun at the person? Are you just hoping that that would knock them out rather than the bullets that was trying to kill them? But anyway, he throws the, the gun at the at Bec- at Becky and um, Harry, and he runs off to the bathroom. And of course he's standing there, and he's got his ear towards the door, waiting to see what's going on, whether it's possible that he can still hear harry and becky and he's like okay i can't hear anything now this is where the great jump jump scares happen because it gets nice and quiet and nice and soft and then he turns around bang there they are right right next to right next to him and he's saying and of course they're they're saying come on richard come to the beach with us we've got we've dug a hole but remember if you can hold your breath and of course he's starting to to you know um laugh because he's, he's so terrified richard's so terrified um, and, of course, they managed to appear inside, all the while the couple taunt Richard with the same words he said to them. Richard soon finds himself on the beach, buried up to his neck, facing both the approaching tide and the sight of the two sets of put- footprints disappearing into the surf. With the same seaweed-covered ri- uh, camera he used to record Harry's death recording him, Richard laughs insanely and screams how he could hold his breath for a long time as the tide ri- as the rising tide begins to wash over him. Returning to the animation, a strong gust of wind blows the comic book out of the trash can and under the street where it opens to the next story. So, yeah, it's really great the way they've done this because, um, and Leslie Nielsen just basically says, I can hold my breath a long time. And then, of course, you see that the water hit his chin and he has that the look on his face like, oh, shit, crap, <laughs> oh, my God. And we're going to start again. So that's where it transitions really, really quickly. And, and as I said, this is such an enjoyable, enjoyable movie, and I really loved doing this movie. And I, I, yeah, I, I loved doing this movie. It was, it was absolutely great. So, hmm, should we have another ad break? Five minutes remaining. Oh, it's not five minutes remaining. Oh, my God. Don't worry about that. We're going to continue on with our stories, and this one is called The Crate. Mike, a janitor at the prestigious Horlicks University, drops a quarter which rolls behind a crate under a basement staircase. While attempting to retrieve it, he comes across a wooden crate marked shipped to Horlicks University via Julia Carpenter, and it says that there was an Arctic expedition June 19th, 1834, hidden underneath the staircase. So he basically is trying to work out, um, okay, well, what, what's, what's this, you know, because I've was, i never seen this before, and, and not, not that anyone is really looking underneath the staircase, and it's, it's in pitch black. But anyway, he, he rings up the dean of the university, um, Dexter Stanley, uh, a biology professor, to notify him of the fine, drawing Dexter away from a faculty, ga- a social gathering. And he, he basically says, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it will probably be a whole lot of um, Reader's Digest and stuff like that. And he goes, well, hang on a minute, was Reader's Digest around in, in uh, that time, in 1834? And he's like, oh, well, maybe you've, you have found something, I better come over and have a look. So you know, he, he leaves the party and he heads over towards the university. And uh, leaving, unfortunately, one of his friends, uh, a good friend and colleague by the name of Henry, who witnesses his perpetually drunk, obnoxious, and emotionally abusive wife Wilma, who <laughs> who he often daydreams of killing, annoying the guests and embarrassing both himself and Henry at the gathering. So he, she is just disgusting. I mean, it's she's just got that. Everyone calls me Billy, and. You know he but she's basically talks down to him oh you're such a little kid henry what would what would you ever do without me and you know really belittles him as a man and you know i wouldn't even hesitate to think that she's off having an affair somewhere because she does really drill into him that he's not a man and this and that but he's got a very good job i mean he's, he's a professor so hey he shouldn't he's not doing too badly but um wilma who is disgusting I mean, she's such a horrible person um, he does. He does have, have fantasies about being able to kill his wife. And after the emotional abuse, it would probably be self-defense It where he wouldn't be uh, murdering this woman. So meeting Mike at Amberson Hall, Stanley helps him remove the crate and move it into the nearby lab. So as they're opening the crate, um, you know, they're pulling off all the nails and stuff like that. And Mike happens to see what he thinks is um, gold, something glittering in the in the crate. And of course, what's the first thing you do? Oh my God, there's something in there and and I'll put my hand in there. So he puts his hand in there and of course the entire scene goes red because he's being eaten by something. And the crate falls onto its um, side and the door opens up and there happens to be a huge, enormous monster basically in the crate. We don't know what the hell it is right now. So when the crate finally does open just briefly, it uh, basically gives the idea that it's a shaggy ape-like creature with sharp fangs. It could be a, a yeti, who knows what it is. Uh, the creature promptly kills and entirely devours mike leaving behind only the man his mangled boots which is uh yeah saying something you wouldn't eat all of it you just leave the boots okay fair enough so running from the lab dexter bumps into a graduate student charlie who he frantically tells about what has happened while skeptical charlie agrees to investigate The the two return to the lab to find it covered in blood with both the crate and the creature gone they find that the crate has been moved back underneath the stairs while they also find Mike's boot. Wanting to measure the bite marks on the boot, Charlie examines the crate closer. Unfortunately, the creature pounces on Charlie, killing him as Dexter flees and takes the boot with him. So, yeah, it really does. It, it's um, he's just, He just goes to look at the bite mark and then, of course, suddenly the crate opens up again. And what I consider to be the Yeti attacks again and uh, it swipes my uh, Charlie across the face. Ripping part of his, his uh, cheek apart and then of course he bites him on the, uh, on the cheek and starts to devour him immediately. So traumatised and hysterical, Dexter runs off to uh, Henry's house after Wilma leaves for the evening. He relates everything that has happened since the crate was discovered and argues that the monster must be disposed of somehow. Seeing the creature as a way of ridding himself of his wife, Henry appears to believe Dexter's, Dexter's story. Henry basically looks at it and goes, here's an idea. This is a great possibility for me to get rid of Wilma because this bitch, I've got to get rid of her. I'm not going to divorce her because I'm not going to pay her any money. But I just need to get rid of her because she basically destroys me as a man. She doesn't respect me as a man. So this is a great idea to get rid of her. So he spikes um, Dexter's drink, and course, with sleeping pills and knocks him out. And he basically writes a fake note to Wilma to say that uh, Dexter got himself into a bit of trouble and he's assaulted a female student and she's crawled underneath the stairs and she won't come out and i need you to come to the college and help me get her out because this is you know terrible for the college and dexter's in a lot of trouble and you know we we just i need you to come here billy because you're the level headed one in the relationship because billy comes home now the funny thing is you know i wonder where he put um dexter because dexter's passed out drunk well not really drunk you know in you know a sleeping pill induced sleep so where did he put her did did he put him um you know in his library or did he put him in their bed who knows but anyway so billy decides okay here's an idea i'll drive over to the college and see exactly what's going on so of course when wilma arrives henry lures her underneath the basement stairs where the monster seems to be unresponsive because so she's like you know um he, he, he basically pushes her into the where the crate is and starts banging against the crate and going, "Come on, wake up! It's dinner time! Come on, come on! Where are you?" And of course, you know Wilma's like, you know, um, "Don't you ever touch me again, whatever!" And basically threatens him and says, "You know, now for you know, for the love of God, if you don't get out of my way, you'll be wearing your balls as earrings." And of course, when Wilma begins to ranting at Henry for this stunt, the beast mauls and eats her. And of course, as they as it's mauling her and eats her. Um, she, he's basically saying, well, just just get it to call you Billy like you always do. <laughs> like everyone calls you Billy. Just let, just let it call you Billy. Um, the next morning, Henry describes to Dexter how he secured the beast back in its crate. So he basically, um, you know, he sees the, the, the after it's eaten the three people, um, Henry goes, okay, well, I've got to get rid of this crate. So he goes over the crate and he's got some chains, puts the chains around the box and locks it up and, of course, drives it out to this old quarry which has got a very very deep pit of water and he's basically saying to Dexter you know I think in the end it knew where it was going to be going and of course Dexter's got the you know what happens if it gets out and he goes listen I tied that box up so tightly it's not it's not going to get out no way in hell and you know he he said I've dropped it so far down into the water it's going to drown in, in its box however it is subsequently revealed to the audience the beast is still alive and at last tearing the crate apart returning to the animation it begins raining as the comic book turns to the next page beginning the final story this one is called they're creeping up on you and before we do i think we have a quick ad break And we're back, and this is the possibly the creepiest, disgusting, vile one that uh, you could possibly go with. So Upson Pratt is a cruel, wealthy, and ruthless business mogul who suffers from a phobia where it basically sees him living in a luxurious, futuristic, and hermetically sealed penthouse apartment fitted with electric locks and surveillance cameras. His apparent contacts with the outside world are primarily through the telephone and mostly made up of put-upon employees. One stormy night, Pratt receives a call from George Gedron, one of his subordinates, about the fact that the company, Pratt International, has recently bought the Pacific Aerodyne Company in a corporate takeover. Gedron also informs Mr. Pratt that the takeover caused a business rival, Norman, Norman Kastenmeier, to commit suicide, much to Pratt's delight. So he's like, you know, oh wonderful, you know, I don't have to pay him out, you know, I've We've taken him over and, and he has a, a payout settlement, but I've he's killed himself, so that takes care of that. But of course, at this moment Upson Pratt is also trying to get rid of a cockroach. Now there is a cockroach that he found in his hermetically sealed apartment and of course he sprays it with bug spray. Now anyone who sprays you know cockroaches with a bug spray knows that you gotta squish them. You can't really spray them because they just they're almost impervious to everything. So um, you know, he's sprayed it and of course he's looking over to see where the where the cockroach is while he's talking to this guy and he looks back and of course the cockroach is gone. All that's left is just this can of bug spray. And he's like, well, I've got to let you go, George, because he goes, you know, I've got a a bug problem. I've got to get rid of this bug problem. And of course, slowly during the call, Pratt slowly begins to find cockroaches around his apartment. A (laughs) A fanatical insect hater, Pratt arms himself with bug spray. In an attempt to rectify the situation. Before long, someone manages to get through on Pratt's private line. The caller turns out to be Norman Kastenmeier's widow, Lorraine. Now, he's basically, she She rings him and uh, she's like, you know, uh, you, you, you motherfucker or you asshole or whatever. You know, you made my husband commit suicide, of course. Ups and Pratt's like, oh yes, I heard old Norman went out with a bang. And he goes, she says, uh, how many men have you killed? And he goes, only the dumb ones. Only the ones who've stretched out their necks and handed me a knife. Only the ones that, if you pardon the expression, fucked up. <laughs> and, of course, and he goes, uh, Mrs. Kastenmeier. And, of course, she's, like, she's saying, I hope you die of leprosy or whatever it is. And he goes, Mrs. Kastenmeier, uh, Mrs. Kastenjammer, uh, how did you get this private number? I'd like to find the person who gave it to you and fire them. And she goes, well, it was in my husband's address book, you son of a bitch. And of course, he looks and he goes, "Oh, can't I can't fire him now, can I?" And of course, then she then he disconnects the phone so that way she doesn't get through that that line anymore. So, <laughs> um, after finding pieces of cockroach in his food processor, so he's eating a eating some, some uh I like chocolate cereal or whatever. And as he's eating it, he looks down and he sees this bit of. He thinks it's it's a cockroach. And he's like, oh, my God. So he goes over to the food processor and he's picking out. And, of course, everyone knows that there is a possibility when you have chocolate that there is some animal, I, I don't want to gross people out, but there is a, a, a common-held belief that there is a small amount of bugs that can get into chocolate and they just do, they grind it up with it. So, But this is pretty significant because you can see the bits of cockroach. So Ups and Pratt grabs the bowl of, uh, like, the pack of cereal, and tips it over and of course these cockroaches start falling out and he's he's trying to bang them to, to kill them and he's trying to squish them on the counters and whatever. So Pratt receives a call from the building's landlord, Carl Reynolds, despite being caught in his vacation in Orlando, Florida, Pratt forces Reynolds to send handyman Mr. White to call an exterminator and under the threat of firing him. And he's like, "Don't do you like your job, White?" Uh, so do you like your job, uh, Reynolds? And he's like, uh, yes, sir, I do a lot. And he goes, well, I better see a, a handyman and, a, and an exterminator here within the hour or you can stay on your vacation forever. So he's like, oh, okay. So our exterminator, or our, our building supervisor, Mr. White, soon arrives outside Pratt's door, mocking, <laughs> mockingly speaking to him in a stereotypical mistrial voice while talking to Pratt to mention that he is calling the fumigators. Afterwards, rolling blackout, heads towards the building. During the blackout, cockroaches numbering in their hundreds of thousands begin pouring out of every nook and cranny in Pat's, uh, Pratt's apartment. They are everywhere. I mean, they're coming out of his jukebox. They're coming out of a an exhaust vent. They're coming out of the toilet. They are everywhere. There is cockroaches running throughout this apartment, and it's just absolutely vile. And this is when, you know, you get that. And anyone that, that's bug phobic, When you watch this part of this movie, you'll be sitting there going, oh my god, yuck, disgusting. But it just gets worse, and it is going to get a lot worse. So as the situation rapidly becomes worse, Pratt activates the emergency power and attempts to call the police for assistance. Unfortunately, the police are unable to do anything to help the block out, nor is Mr. White, who is stuck in the elevator. In his wit's end, Pratt locks himself in a climate-controlled panic room to escape the growing swarm of cockroaches i need to get another call from uh, the um the, the lady whose husband committed suicide so he locks himself in this panic room and he's like you know you guys you, you're you gonna pay and he's talking to, to the cockroaches and he's like you know and the heads will roll too and of course the phone rings and he, he he's like you know talk to me and that's his that's his way of answering the phone talk to me and she goes pratt you old bastard i think he said she says I hope you die. I hope you die. And of course, uh, he discovers that the cockroaches have already infested the panic room as well. With no way of escape, he is overwhelmed by cockroaches, which induces a fatal heart attack. When the electricity returns the, to the building, the apartment is now doesn't have cockroaches anywhere. And I thought, oh, wow, well, this is interesting. D- did, he, did he dream all this? Because is this something... Just, you know, induced in his mind? How did it go from millions of, or hundreds of thousands of cockroaches to nothing? Like, where the hell did they all go? I know they were in the, you know, in, in that panic room with him, but they're not there now. He's laying on the panic room bed. Uh, Where the hell are they? They've just disappeared. So, of course, um, Mr. White calls into report, but gets no answer. Mr. White mockingly quotes, What's the matter, Mr. Pratt? Bugs has got your tongue? However, Pratt's body soon begins to contort as cockroaches burst out of his mouth and body, re-enveloping the panic room. Mr. White continues to call the name and get no response and then quotes, Bastard! Of course, returning to the animation, the final gust of wind blows the comic book further down the street, where it lands on a nearby curb. So that was the end of that story. Now we go into the epilogue. And of course, in the following morning, two garbage collectors, Tom Savini, who happens to be the special effect whiz for so many horror movies and is the special effect... Uh, special effects person of this movie, find the Creepshow comic book on the curb. They look at the ads in the book for the X-ray specs as Charles Atlas bodybuilding course. They also see that the advertisement for the voodoo doll was briefly glimpsed upon earlier, but lamented in the order form has already been redeemed. So someone's already got the the, um, the voodoo doll. Remember, keep that in mind. It's going to come back in just a moment. So in the inside the house, Stan complains to his wife that he is suffering from a, a pain in the neck. Like a really sore neck. And she's like, did you sleep on it wrong? And he's like, no, I I don't know. I've just got a really sore neck. Upstairs, Billy is revealed to have sent away for the voodoo doll seen earlier and has decorated it with a piece of of his father's clothing and some of his hair. Stan clutches his throat in pain as Billy repeatedly and gleefully jabs the voodoo doll with a pin, finally getting revenge on his father for his past abuse and also saying... This will teach you to get rid of my comic books and he's stabbing and stabbing and stabbing this voodoo doll. And it's just, yeah, it's awesome. I love that part of the movie. Transitioning to animation for the final time, the images of Billy jabbing the voodoo doll becomes the color uh, the cover of the next issue of Creepshow. The creep is seen holding the same comic book, laughing sinisterly as the candle goes out. And there it is. The movie fades to black and we have the credit rolling. This movie, as far as I'm concerned, is is really, it's it's great. And I'm telling you, I in this part of the podcast, I give a rating between zero to five buckets of blood. Zero being how do I get the last two hours of my life back. To five being it was a perfect movie and I'd watch it again. Once again, I'm going to give this one, as I did the last one, I'm going to give it a five. It was a movie that if you were, if I was sitting in the room and you came in and said, Oh, what were you watching? I was watching Creepshow. I've always wanted to see that one. Okay, let's watch it again. I would have no problems watching it again because it's enjoyable. It's a great cast. The story moves along really, really well. And overall, it's just a really great movie. And I've never had any problems watching this movie. I've got it. It's become a cult following. Yeah, I love it. So in wrapping up this episode... Thank you so very much for um, joining me in the Horror Crypt. Before I do go, however, I think we should get to some fun facts. Yes, welcome to Paul's Fun Facts. Now, these fun facts can be parts of the movie. It can just be fun facts in general, but today I'm going to concentrate on the fun facts of Creepshow. So while he was all business in his scenes, Leslie Nielsen had a fart machine in his pocket during shooting. He would let it go off during rehearsals just before actor George A. Romero would call action, causing Ted Danson and the crew to crack up with laughter. Yeah, that sounds very, very much like something that um, Leslie Nielsen would do, and I don't disbelieve this one one little bit. Now, the most expensive part of the the movie happened to have been the cockroaches. So George A. Romero had said that the cockroaches were the most expensive part of the movie, stating that cockroaches cost 50 cents a piece, and they had used more than 250,000 of them, with a grand total of $125,000 on cockroaches alone. So that's when you really know that you've made it uh, in Hollywood, is when you can go and spend that amount of money on just cockroaches running around the place. But it was effective. It worked so well for... Cre- it was cre- It's creeping up on you. And, um, yeah, it was just vile and disgusting, but it just worked so well. I don't disbelieve this one either. So in this uh, movie, you'll get this uh, marble ashtray. Now, the marble ashtray, it actually makes several appearances. But the, the appearances that you get is uh, Father's Day, obvious. Shows to the viewers multiple times. Because it, it's just all over the place. The lonesome death of Geordie Verrall. It's next to the cash box at the Department of Meteors. And to tide you over, it's on the nightstand next to Richard's bed. The crate on the writing desk where Harry, uh, Henry, sorry, writes a letter to Wilma. And they're creeping up on you. The soap dish when Upson Pratt is washing his hands. The wraparound story on Billy's desk when he first starts stabbing the voodoo doll. I reckon that's great because they can actually just add this little bit of. Uh, interest into the movie where you can you spot it sometimes it's pretty obvious like as I said in Ups and Pratt's um, apartment it's like oh there it is but um, the one in the lonesome death of Geordie Varel you have to really look for that one but yeah there it is as well and just one final piece of uh, uh, trivia for this movie the music playing in Ups and Pratt's jukebox at the beginning of the creeping up on you is the same instrumental piece that plays over the ending credits of The Evil Dead 1981. So once again, thank you very much for listening to the Horror Crypt Podcast. Once again, tell your friends. it would be great to get some more listeners. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Horror Crypt Podcast. I'm going to leave you tonight with a bit of a special guest, the one and only Mr. Leslie Nielsen. So in saying that, I'll creep you later.